Welcome, everyone. I think more or less everyone in the modern product world has heard of Marty Kagan. His books inspired and empowered became classics and a must read for each product person. So when I reached out to Marty and asked him whether he would be open to speak at the Project A Knowledge Conference, to be honest, I didn't really expect that he would take the time and say yes, but he did, which made me very excited. So it's a pleasure and an honor for me to welcome Marty Kagan, the author of Inspired and Empowered, the founder of the Silicon Valley Product Group, and one of the most known persons in the product world to this year's Project A Knowledge Conference, and his talk, Product Leadership is Hard. Marty, the stage is yours. All right, thank you very much, fun. I appreciate it. And you know, I'll tell you, what, I, what attracted me to the conference was actually your theme, uh, the art of dissent. Um, I don't know if you knew this or not, but I've, uh, that's one of my favorite themes, actually. And so uh, that probably comes because I started my career as an engineer, and I think that's true with a lot of engineers. But uh, I, I like that theme, and especially I like it uh, for, uh, for this particular discussion. So what I wanted to talk about, first of all, I wanted to, um, you know, I want to, I want to talk about something that I think is provocative. Um, I hope very much that I don't offend anybody on this call. I probably will, but I don't intend to. I, I will tell you right now that I am going to point out a lot of problems I see, especially in European companies, especially in Northern European companies, uh, especially in German companies. I'm going to point these out. Uh, even though I know many exceptions to what I'm going to say. I think I, my first business trip to, well, my first business trip to Germany was actually with HP uh, in the 1980s, but my first sort of relatively modern era, we, I was at eBay and we acquired Alondo, which many of you may know, that was the first uh, internet success story for Germany. They were based in uh, Potsdam in Berlin. And I started working with those people. Of course, you know the Sommer brothers and you know uh, the whole legacy there, but I met so many great people in Germany, and there really are. But I will also say I spend a lot of time with companies uh, all over Europe, and there is a pattern, really an anti-pattern, that I think is a very severe problem. Uh, I don't want to also imply, because I meet companies even in San Francisco that have this problem. So it's not just a European issue. But it's a pattern that I see is more prominent in Europe. And I really do want to talk about that. Uh, I'm not going to spend the time to talk about me. If anybody's interested in my history, you can find it uh, online. So let's, let me, let me really talk about that problem first. Um, Jeff Bezos, who I'm sure most of you know, founder and up until just very recently, the CEO of Amazon, um, he likes to call this problem day two. Day one is the mindset of a great product company. Day two is when a company starts to decline. And he talks a lot about what is it that so happens to make a good company start to become a bad company. And one of the biggest things is that process becomes the thing. And this is probably the single thing I 
battle when I try to help companies in Northern Europe, especially um, to become great or sometimes just to stay great. Uh, they, they struggle with this process is much too big. It becomes much too prominent. Um, I love his quote here, good process serves you so you can serve customers. But if you're not careful, the process can become the thing. You stop looking at results, outcomes, and you just make sure you're doing the process right. Now, I want to make sure I'm very you know, specific here. So for example, if your company has product owners as a job, which I bet most of yours do, that's a huge problem. I mean, that is a very big problem. Product owner is a process role. It is not the job. In fact, one of the biggest manifestations of these problematic behaviors is uh, a bunch of unqualified product people. They've only been trained as a product owner. And even worse, they haven't been trained by a product person. They've been trained by a process person, some agile coach that thinks they're doing something useful. They're not. They're dramatically hurting these companies by teaching these people how to be a product owner. And they are completely missing the point. In fact, product owner is the, the personification of this problem that Bezos is talking about. Um, but it's worse than that. It's not just product owners. The processes that so many uh, large, especially larger companies are using. In fact, if your company is using safe, scaled agile framework, I don't even know why you'd be on this call. It's the opposite of what good companies do. I cannot point to a single good product company in the world that does it. And there might be some, I've just never met them. And I know a lot of the product companies. And furthermore, any good company that moved to a process like that, your best people would leave. Your best engineers would leave. Your best product and best design people would leave. So what's going on is process is taking over those companies. And that is exactly what Bezos meant by day two. So I want to try to shine a light on that problem today. And what I'd like to do, you know, the, the most common objection I get when I point that out to leaders at tech-powered companies in Europe is they say, well, we're not a little startup. When we were a startup, we didn't do anything like this, but now we're big and we don't know how to scale agile. You hear that all the time. We don't know how to scale agile. And they think, because they fall into that process trap, that one of the processes, like less, like safe, is there to scale agile. And of course, and I point out to them, then why do you think none of the largest tech-powered companies are actually using that? It's, that is not what it's about. And that's all about formalized process. In fact, waterfall, uh, safe is just waterfall with a bunch of mar agile marketing around it. Anybody, if you look at it even for five minutes, you'll realize it's nothing to do with Agile. So, and Agile is more of a mindset. It's not, the process is not the point of Agile. So what I wanted to do was talk about how good product companies scale product, how good ones do it. And I'm talking about Amazon, Google, Netflix, 
uh, Stripe, Apple, Shopify, good companies scale Agile. And so it's, as you'll see, it's not about process. For none of them, they know better. It's not about process. What it's really about is people. And so we're going to talk about the techniques that they use. Now, I want to be honest, it's not easy. Those companies have got achieved what they did. It's not easy. That's part of the problem is if it was, you know, that's people are attracted to some easy formula. Like you just follow our process recipe, one, two, three, you'll be able to have this, uh, you know, you'll be able to scale agile. It's not how it works. Is honestly not how it works in any good company. It's really about people doing hard work. And that's what I want to talk about. Okay, so the foundation of a good product company is empowered product teams, real product teams. Uh, product teams where products come from product teams. They don't come from engineers. They don't come just from designers, just from product managers. They come from teams. Now, those product teams, also known as squads, for those of you that like uh, Spotify, Spotify is actually worth talking about. Of course, they're not German, they're Swedish, but they, the Spotify's process for scaling Agile is not bad. It is way better than what those other processes are. It's not great. It's not what I uh, you know, recommend, and it's not really even what they use so much anymore, but, but it's not bad. It's a little bit of process, but not much. The core of the reason Spotify is so good is because they have very good engineers and they let those engineers do real work, which is in stark contrast to those other processes we're talking about. So uh, they have real squads and real product teams. What we mean by that is that these teams exist to serve your customers in ways that meet the needs of the business. Now, that might sound obvious to you, but that is the opposite of how it's set up in processes like SAFE and how a lot of teams use Agile. So um, this is important to understand. Those are what we call feature teams or delivery teams. In that model, the engineers are just given a roadmap and they're told, code this. And that's what it's about. But in a real empowered product team, the teams are given customer or business problems to solve. Now that's in contrast to a roadmap of features and projects. And those teams are then empowered. This is what it means to be empowered. They're empowered to discover and deliver a solution to those problems. So instead of being told, oh, you know, you need to add Klarna is a payment method. Instead of that, you're told, we need to increase our conversion rate. That's the problem. Is Klarna a good idea? Maybe, probably. But is that the only thing you'll need to do? Probably not uh, in order to get the results you need. You may need to do some redesign. You may need a different approach. This is why you give teams problems to solve. And one of the benefits of an empowered team is they're actually, they own it. They take responsibility for solving those problems. You can't ask a feature team to own responsibility for anything if you tell them the solution that you think is going to work and make them use it. So hopefully that's obvious, but this is really the, this is a fundamental difference between how great product companies work and how the rest work. 
And it's a little counterintuitive, but you need to realize in strong product organizations, you don't need less leadership, you need better leadership. And that's really what this talk is about, better leadership. You don't just fall back on some process crutch, you build great leaders. Andy Grove, many of you probably know, he was a legendary CEO for Intel. He's actually the guy that invented OKRs. Um, now you have to realize OKRs were created by him for an empowered company. The reason OKRs are such a mess at so many companies is because they're feature team companies trying to use OKRs, which makes no sense at all. So it's called OKR theater. You've probably witnessed it yourself. But he, he was a very legendary CEO and he, um, I thought this was right to the core. What gets in the way of good work? There's really only two things. The first is that your people don't know how to do good work. And by the way, that is the most common problem I see. We're going to come back to that. Your people don't know how to do good work. And just to, just to be clear, you're not going to learn how to do good work at a certified Scrum product owner class. And second, they do know how to do good work, but they don't care. They're not motivated. They're just mercenaries, we say. They're just there to do what somebody told them to do. They're there for a paycheck. Uh, this is a, another Bezos saying, but we need teams of missionaries, not teams of mercenaries. Another way of saying that is we need people that think like owners, not think like employees. So this is all speaking at this point. And yeah, that's not how you're going to act if you're working in a process model. So manage, let's talk about those two things first, managing and then leadership. Managing really boils down to two things, coaching and staffing. And it's really the, this is the fundamental difference you see. First thing you see between great companies and the rest is the investment that strong companies make in their leaders to develop their people. And that's what coaching is. Like Bill Campbell, if you don't know, he was known as the coach of Silicon Valley. He literally coached Bezos, Steve Jobs, and Larry and Sergey at, at Google for a decade on how to build a great product company. Uh, and I love this point. Coaching is not a specialty. You cannot be a good manager without being a good coach. I meet so many managers, especially managers of engineers, and they, I asked them, how much of your time are you spending coaching? Almost none. And I'm like, you, that should be 80% of your time. What are you doing? Why do you think you're even there? And they don't, they, they, they don't know this because they were never taught this. And again, they're just falling back on process. They're like, where in the process does it say? No, we're supposed to let them do their thing. It's totally not right. So anyway, coaching is the foundation. We do a coaching plans for every engineer, every designer, every product manager. And the purpose of a coaching plan is to help people get promoted, help them get better at their job. One of my partners, uh, Christian Idioti, he's a longtime product leader. And I love this quote of his, every problem is a people problem, is really true. Even the process issues are people problems because you're putting the wrong people in charge. If they gravitate to process, that's a problem. <laughs> okay, staffing, it's another area 
Bezos says it's the single biggest reason app Amazon is as successful as it is. I don't know if it's the biggest thing. It's a big claim. They do a lot of things well, but it is true that at Amazon, at Google, at Netflix, they take hiring much more seriously than most companies do. Now, Every company essentially does the same basic things during the interview process, but the difference is it's not at, a, at most companies, and I see this as a real problem in Europe, again, it's so many companies, they, they, they just think HR is there to do the recruiting, but it's not. At good companies, the hiring managers own this. They do it. HR may or may not help a little bit. You, it's your fault for trusting HR on this. This is something the hiring manager needs to own, take responsibility for, make sure you're hiring the right people. Okay, so staffing and coaching is the first big responsibility. That's what we mean by management. If you're a people manager, in other words, you manage individual contributor engineers, designers, or product managers, this should be about 80% of your job, staffing and coaching. And the rest of your job is what we're going to talk about here. Now, as you move up an organization and you become a chief product officer or a chief technology officer, then it's a, coaching and staffing is a smaller percentage, 20, 30% of your time. And the rest of your time is what we're going to talk about here, leading the organization, really leading the organization. This is what leadership means. For those that don't know Leslie, she was one of the early executives at Netflix and is still on their board. And uh, uh, today, this is a mantra at Netflix. And by the way, Netflix is it one of the best uh, product organizations in the world, in my opinion, what they've done. And anyway, they're an extreme version of really everything we're talking about. But their mantra is we, you lead with context, not control. The point there is you lead with strategic context, not with command and control. You don't lead by giving people a bunch of roadmaps of features to build. You lead by giving them the problem to solve. There was a great, um, a great quote, um, Bill Campbell, who I mentioned, uh, he, he's, he's, there's a, I could talk for an hour just about him. I did dedicate the new book, Empowered, to him because I realized how many of the leadership lessons came from him. But he was CEO for several years of a famous uh, company in, in uh, California called Intuit. They do tax software, personal finance software. And anyway, they had hired a few product managers from a bank, which is always risky. <laughs> Generally, it's hard to find good people at banks. So sorry about that for any Deutsche bankers or anything. But uh, it's hard to find good product people. And anyway, he comes into a meeting and he sits down and there's this new product manager standing in front of the product team telling the engineers the features he needs them to build. And he had written them down in a PRD and he's spelling it out in the features. And Bill says, what is going on? He said, if I, ever, he, he looked at the product manager and said, if I ever find you or any other product manager telling the engineers what features you want them to build, I'm going to throw you out of the company. You don't do that. 
You don't provide the features to the engineers. You provide them the context. You explain to them the customer situation. You explain to them their pain. You explain to them your problems, their problems, those customers' problems. You explain to them the constraints of the company, and they will figure out a much better solution to this problem than you ever will. He told that right there in the meeting. And it, it quickly became legendary because he understood. There's another great quote, and it's not an accident. Like I said, Campbell already uh, quotes Steve Jobs, but Steve Jobs used to say, we don't hire all these smart people to tell them what to do. We hire all these smart people so they can show us what's possible. So I want to try to get this message across. This is so important, how good products come. And uh, yes, so we lead with context, not control. This is what we mean by strategic context, the business mission, the business objectives, the product vision, the product principles, the team topology. That's how we structure the product teams. And most importantly, the product strategy. Now, that might sound logical. Honest truth is that so many companies I visited in Europe have, well, they have a, a business mission, everybody does, but they have no real product vision, no team, no real product strategy at all. All they're doing is trying to please the business. Literally, they're just trying to please the business. They have feature teams trying to crank out as many features as they can. So it's not that they have a bad product strategy. They have no product strategy. <laughs> So, yeah, that's a big difference. You try competing against Amazon when that's how you're working. Not easy. And the idea is the product strategy generates these objectives, the problems to solve for the teams, and then teams do discovery and delivery. Discovery is figuring out a good solution to that problem, and delivery is building and deploying that solution. That's how good product companies work. Now, the product vision is really what inspires the organization. Just to point out, because there's a lot of confusion about product vision, especially in Europe. Product vision, it's because you have all these process people trying to teach product teams how to do product. It just makes no sense. And one of the common mistakes is they try to tell every product manager they're responsible for product vision, which is complete nonsense. If you thought about it for five minutes, do you really, if you've got 25 product teams, do you really want 25 product vision? Do you really want 25 product strategies? This totally misses the point. Product vision is supposed to be that North Star that brings us all together. So anyway, forget that. If they tell you that you do a vision by filling out a canvas, you should chase them out of your building because they know nothing what they're talking about. That's not what these visions are. These visions are, are rich. There's lots of examples of them, by the way, on the svpg.com uh, website great famous product visions from all kinds of companies. They're, they're prototypes, they're, uh, they're storyboards, but they're, they show you the future that you're trying to create in the next several years. And they really do inspire an organization for years. They are our best recruiting tool. They drive the architecture, they drive the topology. And most importantly, they, they really show how your customer's life will be better. So, that's a product vision. 
I've always loved this quote. It's not from the tech industry, but it speaks to me because those are the two ways basically of driving a company. One is command and control. You do a project plan with what everybody's going to be doing, or the other is you motivate them, you inspire them. And that's why great product companies put so much effort into a compelling product vision. The team topology, of course, is how we structure our product teams. Um, what we're looking for is very highly aligned, but very loosely coupled product teams. What we're trying to maximize for is autonomy and empowerment. We want teams to have as much autonomy as possible. We want them to be empowered. Now, those are different things. Empowerment means a team is able to figure out the best solution to the problem they've been assigned. Autonomy means they have everything in their control in order to deliver that. Now, we do, most good product teams do have good at real empowerment, but they never have full autonomy unless they're very small organization, very early stage startup, because most organizations have dependencies. What we're talking about doing is minimizing those dependencies. And most of those dependencies are smart dependencies, like on platform services. All right. Um, yeah, there's no single perfect right team topology, but lots of bad topologies out there. You can tell when a topology is bad. If your people on your teams are complaining that they have to work with every other team just to get even small things done, if they complain that things that took only a few days in their previous company take weeks in your company, these are likely topology issues. And obviously, very likely technical debt issues too. Okay, product strategy, one of my favorite topics. This is sort of where you, if, if you're a product leader, this is kind of where you earn your salary. And you need to know, same thing, good product strategy does not pop out of some management tool. If you think there's some MBA for, uh, you know, fill in the blank thing, you're wrong. That's not where it comes from. It comes from hard work. It comes from focus. It comes from insights from the data, insights from your customers, insights from the technology, insights from the industry, and assimilating, aggregating all that information. That's what your product leaders do. I always love this Steve Jobs quote because it's so important. People think focus means saying yes to what you've got to focus on, but that's not it. Focus means saying no to all the other great things you could do. That's what focus really is. Most people do not get that. So starts right there. Then, of course, how you assign work to teams is pretty important for empowerment as well. And there are two basic ways. One is you give them a roadmap with a bunch of features and dates and tell them to get to work. That's command and control. The other approach is you give them problems to solve. You know, there's the famous uh, patent quote, don't tell people how to do things. Tell them what you want them to accomplish. Let them surprise you with their ingenuity. That's what we want. That's what motivates people. And that's what generates great results. That's, uh, yeah. And, you know, don't even have to take my word for this. Take any of your favorite products in the world, whether it's an iPhone or an Alexa device or a Peloton, I mean, or... How about even at Spotify, the uh, Discover Weekly, the, uh, the machine learning generated playlists, anything that you think is amazing. I bet you 
that came from engineers. The idea actually, as it did in all those examples I just gave, but comes from engineers. Because why does it come from engineers? Because they're working with the enabling technology every day. So they're in the best position to know what's just now possible. Good companies understand that. That's why the single most important thing you can take away from this talk is the power of an empowered engineer. Yeah, it's another quote. Avid is in, based in London, longtime leader. But yeah, a leader should articulate what needs to be done, why it needs to be done, and then let the product team figure out the best way to do it. Now, notice best way does not just mean the best way to code, doesn't mean the best architecture, it means the best solution, the best approach, everything. All right, so let me put these together, and I want to make sure we have plenty of time for questions here. Let me put these together for you, these concepts, because there's not that many concepts. There are six main concepts in the product world. Uh, but the first is product vision, of course. The, the product vision is the future you are trying to create. The team topology is how you structure your product teams in order to deliver on that vision. The product strategy is how you decide which specific problems we need to solve now, quarter by quarter. The team objectives are how we assign those problems to product teams. Product discovery is how a product team takes that problem and comes up with a solution that's valuable, usable, feasible, viable. They do that with a lot of prototyping and a lot of testing. And then product delivery is how that team codes, QA tests, and deploys that to come up with a scalable, fault-tolerant, performant, reliable solution. Those are the six main concepts in a good product organization. That is not rocket science. And you also hopefully notice that is not process. That is not process. That's the difference between a process and substance. This is substance. This is what product people do. When I say product people, I should have said this right at the beginning. I mean leaders of product design and engineering. This is what good product people do. They live these things. Process is easy. Process is okay. What's our favorite rituals for doing product delivery? Most processes are actually delivery processes. So for example, Scrum is a time box delivery process and Kanban is a continuous delivery process. Okay, either one's fine. Uh, it's not a problem. You can, I know great organizations with either. It's true. Most companies kind of start with Scrum and then quickly move beyond that because they get better, but who cares? I know companies that don't do any of that as long as they release frequently, as long as they uh, understand the value of moving fast, looking at the data, making corrections. That's what matters. So uh, yeah, there are, there are techniques for discovery, techniques for good strategy, techniques for vision, but those are just techniques. It's not about process. All right, and the last point I just like to make is that I, you know, product leadership is not about making everybody happy. And that is a problem because in some so many companies I meet, the product leaders are literally told your job is to please as many of the stakeholders as possible. And like Steve Jobs said, if that's what you want to do, you'll be better off selling ice cream. You have a lot happier people. 
This is not about making people happy. This is about helping people have their job next year and grow the company and take care of customers. And that's a harder job. All right. Um, let me just finish by saying, and we'll turn this over to questions here, but let me just finish by saying, um, if uh, we don't get a chance to answer your question, you can see my email right there. If you're interested in any of these topics, the two books, Empowered is talking about the leadership responsibilities, the best practices from great leaders. It goes into depth on everything I just sort of very quickly highlighted. Uh, inspired is how product teams work. Product managers, designers, and engineers work to solve these hard problems. It's how they do discovery. And, and so uh, depending on your interest, that's where I'd encourage you to look. Okay, Stefan, do, you, uh, do we have time for some questions then? Yes, sure. Um, by the way, thanks a lot for the talk. I, I found it very inspiring, to be honest. Um, and I saw in the chat that many people felt exactly the same way. Yes, we have a bunch of questions. Um, and I will just start with the highest, uh, highest rateest one. one. And that question is, what advice uh, would you give to help previous, previously hands-on executives step back from defining solutions and empowering the product team in a process? So how would one start that? How do you move? Is that what you're asking? How do you move from the old model to the new model? Exactly. So when I say new model, what I'm describing, what I just described is actually the model that these good companies have been using for decades. So uh, the techniques have refined, but it's really not new. It's just that a lot of Europe is focused on a very old model. So, um, so how do you do that? Well, first of all, it's hard because you have to realize you're changing culture. This is really culture. The when a company is addicted to process, like product owners and rituals, that's a cultural problem. That is rate, that's a culture that values process more than outcomes. That's a, cu a culture that values process more than people. And so that a hard change. Now, uh, if you're interested, I published a specific article on this with one of my partners based in London, John Moore, called um, The Keys to Successful Transformation. But there are several things that are really important to do if you want to make this change. The most important one actually is your CEO, the leader of the company. If the leader of the company is not willing to take personal responsibility to drive this change, All I can tell you is you'll spend millions of euros and not get anything out of it. This is, uh, this is why so many companies think transformation means moving to agile, which of course is ridiculous. Moving to agile, should you do it? Yeah, but is that going to transform these things? Not even close. Or some companies think moving to OKRs, ridiculous. These don't, it is much harder. It's also true if your CEO just says, oh, well, we have a chief digital officer responsible for all this. That's a sign it's not going to happen. Companies are spending, I mean, literally billions in total of euros on uh, transformations that have gone nowhere. And it's really important to understand why. In fact, so many companies end up hiring these consultancies. And those consultancies, what do you think they do? They introduce you to a bigger process. So it is amazing the damage that's caused. You can't believe how many people. So the first thing you really ought to do if your company decides to get help is make sure you're getting help from somebody that has a clue. 
So don't, don't go to those management consultancies that are just going to introduce a bureaucracy. That is not what you need. Go to somebody that's been there, done that at a good company. So it's got to be driven by the leader, number one. Number two, you need to make sure you have head of product and head of technology that know what they're doing. Because those are the people that will either make it happen or not. And the first thing they need to do is teach their managers how to be real managers. Uh, now, you can get help. There are coaches, but still, it is, uh, this is important. Um, and then the last, you know, there's, there are many things. I'm just highlighting three of them. The third thing I'd highlight is most companies, I'm generalizing very much here, but most companies the engineers are not the problem. The engineers are good and they want to do good work. They went, they studied computer science to learn how to solve great problems. They want to do this. The designers want to do good work. The problem is most often with your people called product owners. Those people are the difference between a product owner and a product manager is night and day. And I would say that there are some people that can go from product owner to a real product manager, but not many. And it is such a different and harder job. And more to the point, the people that usually take a job as a product owner are not the ones you want for a product manager. Because a product owner is a process job. <laughs> it is literally a backlog administrator. That is a bureaucratic job. A product manager is, is like a startup CEO. It is a very hard job. To, to make that very specific for you, I tell CEOs that, because they often struggle with this, they say those product owners, they're useless to me. And they're right, they're useless. I tell them the only people that they should have as product managers are people that they believe are future potential leaders of their company. That is a very high bar, right? And most of them say, well, these product owners, not even close. So this is very important. Uh, and by the way, if you think, okay, that's fine, we'll have product owners and product managers, no. The product manager needs to cover the product owner responsibilities. It's not hard, but that is not two jobs. Thanks a lot. That was a very <laughs> insightful answer. And you saw me smiling quite a couple of times uh, as I exactly feel what you're saying. Um, one more question from an audience um, that is related a bit to that is, um, how would you actually remove the manage from a product manager? And does it really make sense as an like, addition to, to what you just said before? Um, I could say it doesn't, right? Because as you say, like the product manager is a person, you would like to be one person who would also be able to lead your company, right? Um, so does it really make sense to remove the manager part here? Well, I want to be clear. A product manager doesn't manage any people. It is an individual contributor role. That is very, very important. Mm -hmm. uh, just like, yeah, I mean, just like a designer and, a pro and an engineer, they are all individual contributors. They are creators. So a product manager is not a people manager. 
Okay, that's important. The, yeah. the manager of a product manager or the manager of designer, manager engineers, those are people managers. So uh, that's the most important thing. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the person who asked the question was trying to get at, um, but they are not people managers. In fact, we tell product managers, you are not the boss of anybody. <laughs> you are not the boss. It is, uh, and it's important they're not boss. What engineer wants to work for a product manager? What designer wants to work for a product manager? So they're not qualified to be the boss of anybody. Their job is to, to when we say manage, they're managing the product. And what that really means is they're responsible for the value of what gets built and the viability of what gets built. The engineer is obviously responsible for the feasibility of what gets built, and the designer is responsible for the usability of what gets built. But that's what a product manager does. Now, in order for a product manager to be any good, they need to have deep understanding of your users and customers. That means they have to know them personally and interact every week. They have to have a deep understanding of the data that's generated by those customers, uh, web analytics data, sales data, warehouse data, and they have to have a deep understanding of how your business works. How do you market your products? How do you sell your products? How do you finance your products? How do you monetize your products? What are the compliance responsibilities for those products? You notice none of this is thought as a CSPO, none of it, right? So they know that they also have to be on top of the industry, the competitive landscape, the enabling technologies. Is ML appropriate to this product? Is, uh, is cryptocurrency appropriate to this product? The product, that's what a product manager does. I've met so many teams in Europe that have, you know, it's, it's really a bothers me because so many of the best engineers in the world are in Europe. Many great designers are in Europe. Uh, the D School in Potsdam, one of the best places in the world for designers, but they have such a shortage of decent product people. Many of them have never met a real product manager. And it's not because the people aren't there and smart enough. It's because process has taken over in a lot of Europe. Thanks a lot. Um, one more question that that uh, uh, also got like very high rated um, in the in the in the question list is: um, you cite Steve Jobs a few times, and however, Apple has a very distinct culture. For example, information access only on a need-to-know basis. Jobs himself was known for micromanagement or being obsessed by details. So is Steve Jobs or Apple an outlier here? So there's so many misunderstandings about Steve Jobs, actually. And he was not a micromanager, actually. What he was amazing at, he was probably the great... Well, Elon Musk is challenging this now, but he was really a great natural product manager. And at Apple's model, the, the leaders, the, the, the leaders of their areas are really the key product managers for those areas. But he was famous for looking at a prototype and very quickly telling you all the reasons that prototype was bad. That's what he was good at. And so the teams would go back and three days later, they'd come back. Here's another prototype. What do you think of this one? He was great at looking at that. They are, they, one of the things that is unique about Apple is they're incredibly secretive and they don't like to, they don't like to take their prototypes out to external people. They don't need to either. They've got plenty of internal techniques for this, but um, 
but they that's what he did so well. He was, and the other thing he did so well is vision. Vision. You know, he was, he believed, for example, that um, that it was possible to do a 100% touchscreen device for an iPhone. You have to realize that when he believed that and created that vision, the other competitors, Nokia, speaking of uh, regional companies, uh, Motorola, they were doing focus groups and they were told at the exact time Apple was doing an iPhone that touchscreens were a terrible idea. And why? Because the phones they were all looking at in those focus groups were Palm Trios, which had a small touchscreen, but they were terrible. And so if you ask customers what they want, they were like, I hate this touchscreen. Give me a keyboard. Apple, no, they don't even ask them because they know it's not their job. They know, in fact, there's another thing. I'm, I'm giving you too many Steve Jobs quotes, but he used to hold up his iPhone and say, you can conduct 100 focus groups. You will never get an iPhone. So this is really important. And I think people misunderstand. But what I've been talking about, Apple is great at. <laughs> um, in fact, Bill Campbell, the guy who coached Steve Jobs, he not only was an early leader at Apple, but he ran Claris, which was their software division. And then he was on their board for 15 years. He And then he was literally coaching Steve Jobs. So he was a legend at Apple. Uh, and had strong influence. And Apple has always been built on very strong engineers and very strong designers. So great examples, I would argue, of what we've been talking about. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, one other question that came in when you, and I think it's uh, related to what you say about um, having the CEO or like being having the CEO being the driver of the change and the progression is, how can I influence the leadership level of my company to also do this required pre-work and communication of product vision, product strategy, but also team objectives? Yeah, what motivates a CEO? Well, um, there are a few things that seem to work. <laughs> um, the biggest thing that seems to work is fear. Um, if they believe that a good product company, it could be Amazon, it could be Apple, if they believe that They are now going to be competing with them. That usually motivates them to get very serious. The only problem is if they believe that, it, it may be too late because these skills don't take a month to convert a company. It normally takes one to three years to transform a company. And by then you might be history. So fear is a good motivator, but it often comes too late. The second biggest motivator I see is, remember a lot of these CEOs are very financially driven. They're not, they're, their eyes are open. They look at the stock market, right? And they see that the most valuable companies in the world happen to be the ones I'm talking about, <laughs> right? They are literally the most valuable companies in the world. And they often are like, how is it that they are worth so much more than we are? Especially when revenue, if you compare uh, as a, the value of the company as a function of uh, the revenue you make, times revenue, we say, they're like, why is it? Well, they realize, okay, well, they clearly work differently. Now, usually they don't know 
how they work differently, unless they've worked there before or have a, one of their executives that's worked there, but they know it's different. And so they will often say, we know we need to transform. And by the way, the companies that have transformed, Adobe in London, I love Trainline, the companies that have transformed like that, they are worth many times. Trainline became worth 10 times in just their value, 10 times. Adobe, it's much closer to 30 times their value. So uh, it's just, there, there's a big financial reward for this too. So fear and greed are the two most common. Um, sometimes what it takes is not, the CEO is like, they're happy. They've been doing this for 10 years. They don't want to change at all. I'm thinking especially like bank CEOs, telco CEOs, try to get a company like Deutsche Telekom to pay attention to stuff like this. They're like, no, we make lots of money. We're fine. And sometimes what it takes is the board to say, if you don't lead this change, we will bring someone else in that will lead this change. Those are the three ways I see it change. Um, if you have a leader that is interested at all in the change, then I would encourage you to give them a copy of Empowered. That's happened in many cases. The, the CEOs have reached out to me and said, hey, one of my engineers gave me this book and it's amazing. I'd like to talk to you about it. How would we do this? And that has happened with many companies, actually surprising to me how many companies. Great. Uh, I think that I think that's a very very strong answer, and uh, I think a couple of people who are listening um, will definitely take that chance to do that. Um, when you, I mean, when you speak about that uh, part of changing um, the organization, and you mentioned like it's changing the culture of an organization, um, there's very often people who are also resistant against change yes. because they are in their comfort zone. They feel fine, um, they feel good in the way they are, but. Um, how would you deal with that? Um, is there some way to convince them or is it more in the direction, okay, we will change anyways and either you stay with us or you will then slowly fade out and then leave the organization at one point? No, this is really true. You know, it's important to understand that this is true everywhere in the world. Uh, and there's a name for this. It's called the technology adoption curve, the adoption curve. This exists, of course, in our customers. This is why some customers hate change, other customers like change, but it exists in our employees as well. In every company I've ever seen, even really progressive companies like an Amazon, you will have some people that hate change. It's just inevitable. Now, this is the difference. This is a very cultural thing, but not just company culture. This is also a country cultural thing because in some countries, they are very consensus driven. They want everybody to agree before we make a change. And it's also no secret in some countries, it's very dictatorial. <laughs> you know, the, the CEO says, this is what we're doing. And everybody agrees. Japan, I struggle with this very much in Japan. Most of the things I try to argue has not done well in Japan because culturally, They're all trained and conditioned to listen to their boss. And of course, in a good company, you need to be able to argue with your boss. And then the boss wants you to argue. <laughs> They want to debate. So this is often a problem. So this comes into play is uh, how comfortable are they with this 
change with with disagreement change and so uh you the bottom line is if you want to change this is what leadership means at some point the leaders have to say we are doing this this is why i said at the beginning of your question i said if the ceo is not personally taking responsibility it doesn't happen because there will be some people that the ceo will have to sit down with and say like for example to the chief people officer which is often a problem or the financial officer say look i understand that you don't want to change we're changing you have to decide if you want to help or you'd like another job all right That's unless they're answer. willing to do that it doesn't happen yeah okay um i take that as noted um, for sure um, there was one more question. So we have like a, a bit of time less. And I think it's also related to the post-COVID situation that we're in. And the question was, how do you build great products te product teams post-COVID-19 where you have to deal with the combination of remote but also on-site split of your team? Are there any yeah. recommendations? Yes. Well, first of all, that's better than what we've been dealing with the last two years. The last two years have been 100% remote. And, um, you know, this has been very difficult. There are some things that have been excellent. You know, the truth is, even before the pandemic, we had a hard time finding enough good tech product people in London, San Francisco, Seattle, New York. We were, there wasn't enough room for people to live. They couldn't afford to live. True. So something had to change even before the pandemic. Now, of course, the pandemic forced that. And The good news from the pandemic is people finally accepted the idea that, hey, you know, we can hire somebody in Budapest. We can hire somebody in Prague. We can, this is great. There's talent all over the world. However, we also learned just how amazing and important it is for collaboration when people do get together. Because a lot of great companies saw innovation drop because they were losing that dynamic. We could talk about the reasons, but that's a big talk. Um, but anyway, they were seeing that. The going forward after the pandemic, I feel much better about because my hope, and I'm already seeing this with some companies, that there, we'll have the best of both. In other words, we'll get the talent available around the world, but there'll be local offices all around the world where people can ever, a couple days a week get together around a whiteboard, around a prototype and debate it. And then they'll go back home and work remotely if they want to. And a lot of people will want to, and as a lot of people will want to work in an office. That's a personal choice. And to me, in the ideal work world, everybody gets to make that personal choice, whatever they prefer. A lot of people tell me if they have kids, they want to come to the office because, <laughs> but they say if they don't, they want to work from home. That's all like, Okay, everybody's different, but it is true that there is a magic that happens when we get together, even if it's for just a day or two. Yeah, I think this is exactly the point, and it's a bit what I see at that conference as well, right? So I've been at the onsite location earlier that day, and it's like really, really great to see people and talk to people, and you see that magic that's happening because it's not just like a video communication or video call, right. but it's something different um, that, that's highly appreciated by, by everyone. 
um, that, that we see. Um, so we have time for one more question. Um, and uh, uh, that is a question that, that uh, came up when, when you talked about this difference in Europe compared to US or that um, uh, Europe has a very has a lack of strong product leads and product managers. Um, and the question is, do you think this is more, is it more like a fundamental problem of Europe overall? Are we having a too rational mindset Maybe uh, are we too, or maybe fall too much in love with processes overall because that's just our culture and our approach. Um, do you have any opinion on that or any, any thoughts? Well, I do. You know, and it's obviously I'm an American, um, so I bring all the biases, you know, on that. But I I have worked with a lot of teams in Europe, and I love them, especially German teams. I mean, I, I got to work with I got to work with early Immo Scout. You may know that was the first local great organization, great leaders. Um, but for example, one of their key founders came from Apple. Mm -hmm. At Emo Scout, you know Emo Scout, I'm sure, but yeah, sure. those that aren't German, but um, came from Apple. He understood this stuff already. So not all what I'm saying doesn't apply to all, but it is true. And I think what is going on is this comfort with process, comfort with process. Now, interestingly, I've had this discussion over beers in Berlin many times, <laughs> Um because it's been an ongoing debate. Absolutely. In, if you look at a lot of companies, like the best cars in the world historically have been made in Germany. Sure. And Germ and why is that? Well, the manufacturing is so much better than, but if you look at the difference between manufacturing and discovery, manufacturing, Why is it that Tesla was not a German company? That's crazy. Why is it that Daimler-Benz didn't do it? Why is it that BMW didn't do it? They had all the best talent around cars, but no, they were focused on their mindset. And that's not, unfortunately, what was needed. So Tesla is like, well, if they're not going to do it, and of course, the US auto companies were worse even <laughs> than that, but... But that's, uh, you know, that should have happened there. Now, what I think it is, is because process helps manufacturing, but it hurts innovation. If you obsess over process, when you obsess over process in manufacturing, you get amazing quality. Mm -hmm. When you obsess over process in innovation, you get no innovation. So it's a complicated topic for sure. Absolutely. But uh, I just read a quote from the chat um, who's telling like I could listen for hours and uh, I feel very similar <laughs> in that regard. Unfortunately, the time is over. Um, Mati, I can just say it was really special to have you here in that talk and having also answering also all of these questions um, from, from your audience. So it was really a pleasure. Thanks a lot for a precious time. Um, and uh, I think a couple of people or many people will highly likely hand over the book empire to their to the leadership and their management. Um, so have a great day ahead. Um, for all the others, have a great um, afternoon and evening. And then yeah, see you maybe next year's at the next year's